Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. When I started to uh, prepare for you know any type of uh, series outline or something like that when we're studying a book, I try and make my own outline before going through the book to try and see how many weeks we might take and where we might spend a bit of time after reading through the book a fair bit and seeing the focus on certain aspects, um, trying to see where I might spend time and as I sit down to break down the book and especially in Second Samuel, I knew that I wanted to spend a lot of time around chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, particularly chapter 7 and I, I figured that it would take about four weeks to get through chapter 7 because of the content that's in there and then how we look forward to the New Testament, how important that uh, mountain is in all of the Old Testament, um, in the mountain range of the Old Testament. Um, but if you would ask me at the start if how, how many weeks I would spend on chapter 15, I probably said, would have said about one, maybe, maybe two, based on that there's uh, 37 verses in there. But it turns out we've spent four uh, weeks on this time in chapter 15. And I think the reason why we're spending a lot of time here is just there's a lot in this chapter which is quite important as we look forward to what's happening in, uh, in the coming chapters, mainly particular people which we're introduced to here that we shouldn't gloss over merely that we're just introduced to them. Often when you're introduced to someone in the Bible, it's for a reason. Sometimes it might just seem like a passing comment, but uh, in this chapter we've learned a lot about people, particularly Absalom, uh, Hittaphel, last week, Ittai the Gittite. Uh, This evening we'll learn about the priests and uh, Hushai. and, And of course David, as we go throughout all these chapter 15, these are very important people in the coming chapters. Um, you think about Ittai and his role, Ahitophel and his role, Hushai and, uh, in, co- in contrast to Ahitophel. All these people are quite important as we're seeking to be able to go forward. And I think the author, David uh, uh, Nathan, at this point, uh, is laying this groundwork for those chapters to follow. But also we need to be asking the question that often we know the outcome. We know uh, the people's role that they've got to play. We've read this story before. We know the ending. But for us also we need to be thinking about, well, what's this? what do we know up to this point? What do we know is coming? And try and put that to one side, although you can't do that perfectly. But who's on the right side? People are making their choice between Absalom, between David. Or even if they're on the right side, will the right side actually win? Absalom, the self-made king, seems to be prospering, doing well for himself. Why David, the the anointed king by Samuel, flees from the throne, flees flees from Jerusalem. Now this is a huge event in the life of Israel. King Saul, you might have thought, is appointed uh, by Samuel and know that he's uh, placed there by God. However, what's going to happen to God's people now? And, and where are they? We pointed this out last week, but they're, they're the ones that, who are following the self-appointed king, not the God-appointed king. And as we continue in chapter 15, there's uh, one of the main reasons David was selected to, by God to be king. We see it again once more in this chapter. 
how David is quite the different man from the other men that are around him. We saw this with David's response in his own sin with Psalm 51. What does David do when he's confronted with a prophet of God who says, you are the man? But also, I think in this passage as well, we see David and his heart for God. Again, why did God choose David over all these other men? What makes David different? And we left last week with David standing there at the edge of Jerusalem, at the last house of Jerusalem, and David's watching as all the people walk past him. Gittite the Gittite, he stops and asks, you sure you want to stay? If you arrived a couple of days later, the outcome would have been quite different. Your loyalty would have been to Absalom. But now all the people of God have passed by, and now we turn to verse 24. And the Ark of the Covenant comes before David. Now we need to be reminded that, again, the Ark of the Covenant is not merely just an object. It is an important piece. You almost might say it it plays some form of role as as a character. Now I use that term very loosely, but we need to be reminded to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 7. When they carried the ark of God, when the Philistines were defeating them, and they're worrying, why are we being defeated by the Philistines? Well, I know. We need to take the ark of the covenant into battle. But what happened? They were defeated. The ark was taken from them. Ichabod, the glory of God, had departed. The God was there left in the the land of the Philistines by himself with no army to defend him, but God fought for himself. He fought his own battles. He defeated the Philistine, uh, Philistine's God, Dagon. And then what happened as it came back in chapter 7, the the ark was then left at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So this is a big backstory, and it's only mentioned once in the reign of Saul. That's in chapter 14. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. So it kind of takes this back seat in, in Saul's reign. It's not critical to what Saul does. It, it more is just on the outskirts but then this glorious chapter is we spent a lot of time on in, in chapter 5 of Second Samuel, where David then sought to be able to bring the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, learn about the truth of reverent uh, worship. But notice in the first two instances in, in 1 Samuel that the ark was used as some form of good luck charm, that if we have the ark of the covenant, then things will go well for us. Remember that time in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the people, uh, when the people came to the camp and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that we may come, it may come along us, among us and save us from the power of our enemies. <clears throat> here, they, they thought it was quite clear 
If the ark is among us, then the ark will do some form of magical spell to be able to defeat the Philistines. So what does David do in this instance, in this situation? Does David use the ark of the covenant as it passes before him as he goes to be able to go into the wilderness? How does David then consider it? And he does not consider it some form of good luck charm. He has quite a different understanding. And I think that different understanding comes from chapter 5 with his experience with it before. But let's look at this passage to see how David responds in chapter 15, verses 24 to 29. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And the city, the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. And Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Now, the first thing that uh, we should notice is that even in this time of fleeing and an emergency, that it is the Levites who are carrying the ark. Remember back to chapter 5? It still has an effect on how David and those uh, dealing with the ark um, focus on it. But the main focus here that we notice is, again, David does not use the Ark of the Covenant as some form of good luck charm, but he seeks to be able to trust in God. He tells them to be able to carry the Ark of God back into the city. And he gives these two outcomes of what might possibly be. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But, if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David, standing here on the edge of the city of Jerusalem, doesn't know the outcome of what is going to happen. He doesn't know what's going to happen with his own life. He doesn't presume the outcome. He places his life in the sovereign will of God. The godly often understand they do not get to ordain what shall come to pass, but it is God who does. Remember Jonathan in chapter 14. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You notice there that he says that it may be. 
He doesn't assume that because he's a Christian that he marches into battle that his life is going to be spared because he's a Christian. He's a believer. It may be, he says. Or I think I've used this example before, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here they they say there's this assurance that we know that we will be delivered out of your hand. They don't know how they're going to be delivered out of their hand. Either God is going to save them here in this moment, or even if they do die, that they're not going to bow down to this golden image. This is David here on the edge as he's going into the wilderness. He does not know the outcome of what is to come. He does not assume just because God is uh, his God that he will be safe, that he will see the Ark of the Covenant again. He trusts God and he trusts God no matter the outcome. That's very important. And he seeks to be able to find favor in the eyes of the Lord as Joab did. As he said to David, as David says now to the Lord, in chapter 14, Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king. So as Joab comes and bows before King David, King David bows before God and says, Whatever you may will, whatever seems good, to my God, the King. David places his life in the hands of God, knowing it is not up to Absalom and his plan, and Absalom and what happens, but God. The outcome of all this will not be decided by man, but by God. Where he says right at the very end of verse 26, let him do to me what seems good to him. Here he trusts in God enough to be able to say, whatever goodness might look like on my perspective, let it not be good in my eyes. Let it be good in your eyes. Isn't that an important thing when we think about what we've been looking at in the period of 1 Samuel, the end of Judges? Those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here, King David, again, one of the reasons why I think King David is such a a godly character in this moment is because he doesn't seek to be able to do what is right in his own eyes or good in his own eyes. He trusts that it will be good in God's eyes and not mine. And what a difference we see here between Absalom and David. 
Absalom would use anyone and anything for any purpose as long as it accomplishes his plans. He'll use people as pawns to be able to move them around, to be able to get his outcome that he wants. Think of those 200 people that went and had that party with him in Hebron. But what does David do? David says here at the edge of this city in Jerusalem, I'm not going to use the Ark of the Covenant of God to be able to hopefully get my advantage. I'm going to trust God and see what good is Him. Whatever God deems as right. You might say this is the, the summary of the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. And here it is in, in practice. He's, he's standing here saying, Your will be done, God. Whatever might seem good to you. Dale Ralph Davis says, puts it this way. No gimmicks. No superstitions. No rabbit foot religion. No coning God by pilfering the ark. This is not weak resignation, but robust submission. Here is the freedom of faith in the will of God. All depends on Him. If I find grace in Yahweh's eyes, but if He says, I do not delight in you, how much sheer relief there is in this. For David does not bear God's load of what will happen to me. I must not use God, the ark, but submit to him, and he will do as he pleases. Now, this does not mean that David just says, whatever, you know, Whatever happens, happens. I'm just not going to do anything. You see, he's actively doing something in this time, but trusting in God as he's actively doing something. To be able to see what God has ordained, but not just waiting to see what God has ordained. But we also see not just him trusting in God in this moment, but also his reaction and how he deals. What's the next thing he does? We see in verse 30 and 31. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told, David... Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's a great day, and it's not a great day of joy, but a great day of mourning. Again, God had never promised that David would stay alive. His promise, actually, in Second Samuel chapter 7, was that after he lies down with his fathers, after he dies, then God will raise up another to be able to sit on his throne. And his kingdom would be forever. And David here is not leaving Jerusalem victoriously, but mourning. He leaves barefoot. Isaiah 20, verses 2 to 4. 
the time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and lose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the king, the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign in the uh, portent against Egypt and Cush. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered and the nakedness of Egypt. Here is a walk of shame, defeat. And this is what David does. He's dejected. But in this, he still trusts in God. That simply David hears some news and he turns to God in prayer. Not a long prayer, made up of elegant words. Again, you think of Psalm 51 and what a beautiful thing that is. Here, just a short prayer. Short prayer that he prays. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's simple prayer. Specific prayer. But also we need to understand that it is a big prayer in, if you understand Ahithophel. We learn later in chapter 16 that in those days the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So it was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Here it's not saying that it was the word of God, but it was esteemed like the word of God. It was like someone, a devout Christian, going to the Bible and saying, what does the Bible teach about this? That's what people would assume of going to Ahithophel. So it was a big prayer in the sense that David was praying that Ahithophel's wisdom would be turned into foolishness. Some have even said Psalm 41 verse 9 speaks of Ahithophel. When even my close friend in whom I trusted, whom ate my bread, had lifted his heel against me. Again, a, a close relationship. When we're introduced to Ahithophel early in the chapter, it's, it's not the king. He's not the king's consult, but he's referred to as David's consult. David's counselor in verse 12. So David prays the simple prayer. Again, under showing his, his sovereignty and in, in God's sovereignty in all of this as he trusts, as he stands on the edge of Jerusalem. You want to see someone's theology and doctrine? The best way, I think, is to watch how they live and hear how they pray. You will hear how they understand who God is. How they view the world. Where their home is, their purpose in life. And I think you can hear most of this in how people pray. Do you pray to a big God or a small God? A powerful God or a weak God? 
And David is honest. He, he says, I cannot orchestrate anything from here. Although I am the king of Israel, rightly appointed and anointed, it's only you who can change the hearts and the words of these people who conspire against me. It's only you who can make the wisest man seem like he is a fool. The simple prayer is answered, as we'll see, through simple means. We'll get there at this right, maybe Christmas. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> but in chapter 17, the council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the council of Hittophel. For the Lord had ordained to, to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. But you even notice how, without going down a rabbit trail here, it is the ordinary means of David praying a prayer in chapter 15 and God answering that prayer in chapter 17, which carries out God's ordained plan. But we not only see that David turns to God, trusting in God, he turns to God, praying to God, but he also worships in verse 32. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with a coat torn and dirt on his head. I want you to remember this very important truth. We worship on the days when we've been given everything. We worship when we give praise and, and to God for the many blessings which we have received. But worship is not only for those days. Worship is for the days when we are the lowest in our life. When we feel like we have nothing. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. We do not know what our life will be like. We worship God when He has given everything to us and when He has taken everything away. As Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. As his wife turns and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, how can we receive the blessings of God, but also not only the trials of God as well? Both are gifts from God. What happened after David lost his unnamed son to Uriah's wife Bathsheba? He turned to God and worshipped. What happened when he lost his home, his throne, and even if you consider this as not just the, the king sitting on a throne, but also a father and his son. And he turns to God and worships. Worship is not only for those who are joyful, but those who are full of sorrow. Worship is not to be triggered by some emotional switch. But worship is the bubbling well of our glorious God within our hearts. Often saddens me when I hear of people who for some season in their life and sad and long seasons avoid coming to church. Now, I'm not saying that there's there's people who are providentially 
hindered, who are unable to attend church, but because of this time and their sadness in their life, they, they think that they cannot step foot through in the, in the church. They say something like, I just can't worship right now. I can't be around other Christians right now. But the truth is that that is where you need to be. That is where you, what you need to be doing at this time. Worship is, is finding that, that all of the, the promises and the, the fulfillments of what the world has to offer are nothing. It is in Christ that I find all of this fullness and riches. It is worship that we find our rest in God. The place where we're reminded of the joys of heaven in the middle of the storms of the world. But y'all also notice something? That that is where God is. The ark was sent back to Jerusalem. But where is God? God is not with the ark. God is now with David. What a joyous thing to be able to remember is they walk into the wilderness. The ark of God is left back at Jerusalem, but God does not leave David. Now I have a theory, and it just merely is just a theory. Psalms 120 to 135, known as the Psalms of Ascent. And that theory is that most of them are written by David, and potentially during this time. Now I just say it's just a theory, but if you read them, I, and you think about what you read about in the Psalms of Ascent, this longing to go back to Jerusalem. This longing to go back into the house of the Lord. They speak of the mountains. Read them and tell me what you think. This is, but even just Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade of your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. But there's one last thing that David does here in chapter 15. See that in uh, verses 32 to 37. That as he's going to the summit, he worships God, and behold, Hushai, Hushai the archite uh, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been to your father's servant in past time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests with you there? So whatever you, you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, there are two sons that are with uh, them there. 
Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Hushai the Archite. Now we don't know much about Hushai. We're told in verse 37 that he's David's friend. We're also told in 1 Chronicles chapter 27. Ahitophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai the Archite was the king's friend. We find out that this is a very important relationship. Um, like Jonathan was, and now he has Hushai. However, David says something very interesting in verse 33. He said, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. Now we have no more information besides that he would be a burden. So anything more than that is merely just speculation. Possibly he's older, so he would be unable to move. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, a similar thing is said. Um, when he says, Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? But the reason he says, we see in verse 35, I am this day 80 years old. So he, he kind of explains that maybe this might be the case, that Hushai is a little bit older. Therefore, going out into the wilderness, um, it would be some form of burden to him. It might not be about age. It might be about a physical ailment. He's unable to come. Uh, maybe David and him could not share the same cave without murdering each other. They're friends, but friends that you know, need their space apart. But uh, we don't know. My guess is possibly that he's older based on the Second Samuel 19 reference. Maybe he's uh, injured from some form of war in the past. But in all of this, David still has a purpose for him. He says, tell these words to Absalom. I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servants in time past. So now I will be your servant. But the reason of all this is that then you will defeat the counsel of the Ahitophel. Not only the defeat of Ahitophel, but also the middleman between David's line of communication. He's sent there to be able to uh, work against the counsel of Ahitophel. He knows the purpose, but also that whatever you hear from the king's house, you then pass it on to the two priests, Adok and Abathar, and then they'll send to me what you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, goes into the city, and just as they go into the city, Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When you first see David's reaction in verse 13, that the heart of the men have gone after Israel, and, and David's reaction, well, we must run, we must flee. You must think that David has just given up. What's the point? Hand over the keys and just... Absalom, you can be king, that's fine. But I think what you see in chapter 15 in these chapters is, is David's mastermind of why he was such a good king, not only because he was godly, but also wise in his actions. That he sees it as, as fleeing from safety instead of being trapped in Jerusalem with no way of escape that he takes to the wilderness. 
in his planning of looking at the troops and even isolating Ittite the Gittite. Ittai the Gittite. But in all of this, we see that he's trusting God. He does not know what tomorrow will bring, but he trusts in God. He prays to God. He worships God. Even appointing the priest to be able to be his uh, informants in verse 29. I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes to me from you to inform me. But even then, with having Hushai there serving Absalom to be able to inform the priests, but also to defeat the council of Ahithophel based on his prayer as well. Again, you notice the, the ordinariness of this, that he prays that God would make the council into foolishness, but he then has a, a man who then is appointed to be able to do that, carry out the work of God. But lastly, I want to just point out some connections between Second Samuel chapter 15 and gospel accounts. And when we hear of someone weeping on the Mount of Olives, I think we can make the connection to Christ. But I also think we should see some other connections as well. You notice what's happening in chapter 15. The people of God had rejected the true king and sought to be able to follow the false king. This is what happened to Jesus. The true king of Israel had come. Instead of worshiping him, they crucify him. You notice that the king was also betrayed by a close friend, Ahithophel, who he ate bread with. The king mourned over the loss of Jerusalem. The king prayed that God's will would be done. And as we see David here in chapter 15, David is this big type of Christ throughout the Bible. And you see here David's heart. And what makes David so different from almost every other king? That he's the shepherd king. That it is through David, that through his offspring, this kingdom would be appointed forever. This kingdom would come. The Christ the, would have that same shepherd heart, willing to be able to lay down his life for the sheep. To save those, even those who rejected him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.